Good morning. Bring you warm greetings from Kansas City. Actually, not warm greetings. Nearly frozen greetings. I did not intend to displace Blake from the pulpit, of course, uh, nor from the church, but it seems I have accomplished the mission nonetheless. So we will pray for him and for any others who are facing this illness uh, this morning. My name is indeed Owen Strand. I, I do teach at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, we have a seminary, so we have master's and PhD students, of course, training for ministry, primarily pastoral ministry, and then we have a college as well called Spurgeon College. It's recently renamed, and we have the Charles Spurgeon Library, uh, Charles Spurgeon's own personal library at the school, so uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, we don't believe in icons as Baptists, but just under that would be the Spurgeon Library and his personal books. So if you want to take a visit sometime to Kansas City and get some barbecue, perhaps someday watch the Royals and Chiefs uh, and see the Spurgeon Library above all things, please consider yourself invited. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you for having me. Some years ago, I heard a story about the musician Michael Card. His father was a doctor uh, a surgeon who performed intensive surgery on a regular basis. And when Michael Card's father would come home after hour upon hour in the operating room, uh, young Michael Card, who became a musician years later, would want to connect with his dad and talk with his dad and show him things from his day as children do. I have three little kids, ages 12, 9, and 6, as Brad said earlier, girl, boy, girl. And so I know this phenomenon firsthand. You come in, through the door and you are welcomed either with a tackle on the part of one of my children or a sweet hug on the part of two of my children. I'll let you figure out who does that. And, uh, and so I know what it is to receive childly affection when you come in through the door at the end of a long day. Michael Card, however, struggled to connect with his dad because his dad was carrying such strong burdens in the operating room that he would come in from a long day at work and he would feel the need to go into his study and shut the door and have some time alone. And it would persist sometimes for a good long while. And so Michael Card eventually adapted the tactic of sliding pictures underneath the door and sending them to his father. It's a little picture when he told this sad story of wanting so deeply to know his father and connect with him, but struggling to do so. Beyond an earthly father, which is of tremendous importance to our health and well-being in human terms, we have a much, much greater need. We all need a heavenly father. We all at some level as human beings want a father who loves us and who brings us safely into security and blessing and belonging. But outside of the Bible and outside of faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son, we cannot find the Father. We will not know God the Father. And that desire, that longing, which will persist for the entirety of our lifetime, will go unmet. Praise God, our passage this morning, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 in the New Testament, tells us how we can know God the Father, how we can connect 
with the one who made us and made us for his own glory. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, has three movements in the passage that we're going to cover this morning. First, in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see that the peoples of earth are alienated. You see it up there on the screen. Second, in verses 13 through 18, we're going to see that the two peoples, Jew and Gentile, are united in Christ. And then third, in verses 19 through 22, we're going to see that the church is the household of God. Three movements in the passage, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Let's look at our first movement. The peoples of earth are alienated, verses 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called, or the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus in on it. It's not easy, uh, depending on what we have been facing, to set aside the cares of our day, our week, our year, our life right now. We are in a turbulent and roiled season as a nation, as a people. So we add that chaos to all our own personal chaos coming into church this morning. And we ask, Father, that you would do something powerful in us, that you would lift our eyes from ourselves, that you would lift our eyes from our own circumstance and situation, much as it matters to you, and yet we would see something much, much greater than anything that is before us immediately. We would see you and your glory and your glory in the face of your Son, Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Paul writes here to the Ephesian Christians who were not Jewish by background, and he points to the stark division between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles, he writes, were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, the old covenant people of God, and strangers to the grace of God, mediated through the covenants with creation, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, the Old Testament's covenants, with the Abrahamic covenant being the cornerstone covenant of the Bible. Really, the rest of the Bible from Genesis 12 onwards is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God makes with Abraham to give him descendants that number as the stars in the sky. So there's a a storyline that is playing out, not just in the the mega hero movie that comes to the theater near you. There is a much greater and more dramatic and powerful story that stretches over all human history playing out in the Holy Scriptures. But the Gentiles don't know that story. They're strangers to it. They're coming in in an alien condition, the way many of us have come into a local church at some part of our life and felt alien to it, whether we were raised in it or not. Outside of divine grace, we are all, verse 12, separated from Christ. We are all in the position of the Ephesian Gentiles. There is no one who is a natural-born child of God. There is no one who can say, man, I was born into a good family. I'm from a ministry family. I'm from a believing family. My grandfather was godly. My grandmother won people to the Lord, whatever it may be. There is no one who is a natural-born 
child of God. We are all born into a condition of alienation and separation from God. This is the opposite of the way the proud human heart thinks. We naturally want to think, oh, I have a claim on God. I am good with God. Talk to people in Arkansas. Talk to people in Missouri. See what they say. See what they say in my native Maine state. They'll say things like, oh, yeah, I mean, I know God. I don't necessarily go to church all the time, or I'm not super religious like you, or I might have my own way of connecting with God, or I'm spiritual but not religious. In one form or another, when you hear those kind of statements, which you hear at work, which you hear at school, which you hear when you're meeting up with, I don't know, the mom's group or something like this, you are hearing that kind of claim. They may not say it that directly. My natural condition is actually that I am fine with God. They may not use these fancy theological terms, but basically in our natural state as human beings, we proudly want to think we are good with God. I'm not separated from God. I know God directly whenever I want to. I just pray to him, ask for what I need, ask for what I want. He responds to me. I have my own special dimension with him, not really churchy, but I'm good. I'm good. So Christian, you and your exclusive gospel, this whole thing you're going to run through about being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, I don't really want to hear it. I'm good. But we're not good. We're not good ethically, and we're not good situationally. We're bad, suffice it to say. There's a fancy theological statement from the guy who teaches at a seminary. We're bad. If you get nothing else, ladies and gentlemen, you got that this morning. No one, again, is a natural-born participant in the covenants of promise. This term, covenants of promise, in Ephesians 2.12, reminds us of that storyline of Scripture that I was talking about. One covenant after another. Covenant's just an agreement, basically reminds God's people that he is the one who gives life, spiritual life, unto everlasting life. Outside of the covenants, however, there is no promise. There is no hope. The human and gentilic condition, non-Jewish, that's what it means to be a Gentile, condition is stark. The Bible is a stark book, isn't it? The Bible is not postmodern adapted. The Bible does not mind its 21st century cues. Well, this is what I say is true. You have your truth. The Bible says there are two ways to live. The Bible says there are the sheep and there are the goats. And we are all a natural-born goat. And in verse 12, we learn, as if it's not stark and plain enough, that we have no hope in our natural state. No hope? Come on, man. We have some hope, Paul. I mean, people need a good word to get through the day. You've got you to adapt this to the 21st century. People don't want straight Bible. People want an encouraging, uplifting word from the Scripture. They, they need a little nudge, a little push. They don't need your hard edges and your exclusive truths. But this is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified for the name of Jesus Christ, in a, just a few years after he writes this, telling us that we have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. None. It's a stark condition. This is a stark faith. Christianity. We may not have learned it that way. We may not have grown up with that. It may not be presented that way on Daystar or TBN, depending on what you watch. And yet, this is biblical 
Christianity. We are without hope, naturally, because of Adam's fall, and we're not, we're not a victim of the fall. We're a criminal in the fall. When I say the term the fall, I mean when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit recorded historically, it's a historical account, in Genesis 3, 1 through 13. That's not a a dramatic rendition of an event that may or may not have happened. That's a historical account of how Adam and Eve became sinful, they followed the serpent over God, and how you and I became sinful by nature. That's a historical account. And you could think, if you are following our therapeutic culture today, where we're all victims. We all just emphasize our victimhood. We wear it on our sleeve. We lead with it in conversation. You could think you're a victim of the fall. You could think, in other words, Adam and Eve did something really bad for you, and, and you just, you've been taken advantage of, and it stinks for you, but you're off the hook. But that's not how the Bible portrays it, is it? The Bible says that we are sinners ourselves, by virtue of Adam's fall. What this means in plainer language is that if we had been in Eden, we would have eaten the fruit too. We're not better than Adam and Eve. They didn't victimize us. They didn't take advantage of us. We're criminals with them. Now that's a strong word, isn't it? That's a sobering word. Because we'd like to think, naturally, that we're better than Adam and Eve. We all do. We all would. But we're not. And that's why, in part, it's not that terrible things can't be done to us. They can. And we need to handle those things in the church by the grace of God. But we're not approaching Christianity and God and the church and our day, our day-to-day life, as if fundamentally we're victims. We go the opposite way in the church. We say, fundamentally, I'm a criminal. I'm my biggest problem. I know the biggest problem in my environment and my region me and my sin. It's not that other people, you know, don't do terrible things, don't sin against you. They do. So we have a, we have a full-blown case for handling wrongs done to us. The Bible's going to say a fair bit about it. The New Testament's going to handle divisions in the church and reconciliation and, and, and how you handle someone taking advantage of you. There's lots of things to say. There's, there's a great deal of discussion we can have, but we're still not fundamentally victims, criminals. That's because we're without God. Adam's fall means that we lose God naturally. Now, it's important that we be reminded of this today. To be outside of God, again, is to be without hope in the world. And this shows us that our emotions are not what drive us. We might feel hopeful when we are riding high in our natural state, in our sin. Plenty of people over at the U of A, when times are high, when the teams are winning, when your grades are good, when you pledge the fraternity or the sorority or whatever it may be, plenty of people feel hopeful. Plenty of people, when they get a a raise at, at their workplace, they feel hopeful when they have a child. They feel hopeful, but the deal is hope is not simply a feeling. Hope is an objective state. Hope is an objective state. 
outside of Christ, what Paul is saying is you may feel hopeful or feel hopeless, but you are objectively, truthfully, factually hopeless. Your feelings will ebb and flow. Your feelings will ebb and flow as a Christian, won't they? Some days you feel a thousand percent saved. Some days you feel 0.001% saved. Feelings come and go, yes. One day you're high, the next you're low. You look at the headlines, you're dealing with a political moment that is roiled. Uh, you have your own misfortunes to handle. You have family turbulence. On and on it goes. Emotions up and down. Here's some good news. There is a way to be objectively hopeful. The emotions still going to be something of a roller coaster to some degree for us as Christians, but Paul in, in identifying our naturally hopeless condition is actually telling us something tremendously encouraging, that there is a pathway to true hope. And it cuts right through the cross and the empty tomb. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. The Gentiles can't find this hope in a pill. You can't get it through a therapy session or 20 therapy sessions. You can't get it by people affirming you. That's what our culture wants. Our culture thinks that we can all choose our own personal identity according to our deepest inmost desires. And then when we've identified our deepest inmost desires, what we, what we call for is for everyone to affirm us. You should affirm my identity. Our culture, therefore, is following a gospel of affirmation. If I'm affirmed, then I'm going to be hopeful. So you better affirm me, because if you don't affirm me, I'm not going to be hopeful, and you're going to victimize me, essentially. The Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 2 is saying, no, don't find hope in anything worldly. And I mean anything. Don't find it in a person, in a relationship. Don't find it in psychology. Don't find it in another worldview system. There is only one place to find objective hope that will not fade, that will not ebb and flow, that is always concretely grounded. And that leads into verse 13 and following. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This leads to the second movement then in our passage. The two peoples, Jew and Gentile that is, are united in Christ. The two peoples, Jew and Gentile, once enemies once hostile to one another, are united in Jesus Christ. In their natural state, there goes the pen. The pen is hostile to me, okay? 
we are not reconciled. In our natural state, the Gentiles, as we have been at pains to say, verse 13, are far off from God. Not, again, the way we naturally think about ourselves. We naturally think we're close to God, outside of Jesus Christ even. But no, the Apostle Paul makes clear that non-Jewish people are far away from God. But through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles may draw near to God. Note how Paul frames how this happens. It is, verse 13, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. Do you want to draw near to God? That's essentially the question he is asking and answering. The only way that you can be brought near to God is through the blood of Christ. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? It's not uh, the deeds of Christ. It's not the teachings of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. We're not pitting these against one another. Nonetheless, the only way to come near to God is to be washed, to be cleansed, as the old hymns say so powerfully, in the blood. Christianity is many things, but it is fundamentally and inescapably a faith dripping in blood. Here again, how much more countercultural can you get? We're in a society where being outdoors even now feels weird. Certainly things like hunting, killing animals, it's, it's getting really strange. If you're following like elite American culture, <gasps> somewhere in America they kill animals still. Can you imagine? I'm from Maine, like I said. My wife says Maine people talk about their state a lot. Maine and Texas, I think it's true. I don't know why, but hey, here I am. I'm from Maine, man. I would, I would go to high school, high school parking lot, and this is my context. This is what I grew up in. There would be a dead deer in the back of a pickup truck, and there would be a shotgun on a shotgun rack in my high school parking lot. It was normal. It was totally normal. Blood, okay? You know, I talked to my kids about hunting and these sorts of things, and I have plans uh, along those lines, especially with my son. I think we're nearly at that level. And, and sometimes there will be this sense of, oh, daddy, don't talk about killing chickens as we're eating chicken at the dinner table. Oh, dad, how distasteful from some of the, the, the girls, understandably, to, to a degree. Dad can be, you know, kind of gross at the dinner table, I guess, along these lines. But uh, it's like, okay, there's a chicken out there, and there's a chicken cutlet on your plate, okay? There's a story here, yeah? There's an A, and there's a B. There's a knife involved, or something like this, and there's blood that flows. I think you know this, but I, I, I clearly have more education to do in my home, okay? You're, you're seeing strand family dynamics, all right? Blood, blood is a reality in life, if you're going to eat meat, for example, and blood is a cornerstone reality of Christianity. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that is the very peace, verse 14, between God and man and between man and man. This passage is stunning. It lays claim to hope and peace 
and unity, and it grounds all of them, not in anodyne vanilla feelings or words, but in blood, the blood of the Son of God. That's how much we need blood. We need the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ in verse 14 has three major effects. First, it makes Jew and Gentile one. It makes them one. How? It washes the Jews who have faith in Christ, and it washes the Gentiles the same way who have faith in Christ. There's not one sort of blood for the Jews, Christ's blood, works this way. It's a little different from this blood. And then another blood for the Gentiles. There's one Christ for sinners. Same blood. Washes Jew and Gentile, making them one. Secondly, the blood, this is all what the blood does. Ask Paul about it in heaven. It breaks down to ashes the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. Ours isn't the only hostile context and climate. We're in a hostile age, aren't we? Just log on to social media after the sermon if you'd like to see it. You'll see it in about 0.06 seconds in one form or another. Well, there's a lot to say about hostility in this world. There's only one cure for it. One, the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ destroys the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, people who hate one another, people who are implacably opposed to one another, centuries-long, millennia-long disagreements, grievances, hate, pain, hurt, division, confusion, separation of various kinds, all grounded in the fact that the Jews are the covenant people of God and the Gentiles are not. There's all sorts of things to say about that division, that wall. Suffice it to say that both the Jews and the Gentiles naturally, sinfully I mean, help to build that wall between one another. How does the wall come down? It only comes down through one means in the Bible. It's not through a seminar. It's not through affirming one another in our shared human amazingness. It's not by reading a sociology book. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is how people who hate one another truly can find unity. That is how people who have walls between one another in a family, in a school, in a workplace, in a society, in a culture, in a nation, choose it, can find oneness, can no longer live in hatred to one another. Is this not a common condition? People say the Bible isn't practical. Are you talking about all this doctrine, the atonement of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, penal substitutionary atonement? That's so high level and intellectual. No, it's not. That's the most practical truth there is. Here's the deal. People hate each other. Here's the solution. Jesus. That's basically what Paul is saying. Specifically, the blood of Jesus. You, you, wanna, you want hostility to end? Preach Christ. Preach Christ. And watch as God gives saving faith. And in saving faith, then the Jews are convicted of their sin and washed of it. 
and the Gentiles are convicted of their sin and washed of it, and then they stop bringing it with them wherever they go, which is what they're naturally doing. They're naturally taking generational feuds, hostilities, pain, anger. They bring it with them, which is what we do, again, in our natural state. All of us, we don't need training in this. We don't need training in nursing a grudge, do we? We don't need training. You can do this in a lot of things. We don't need training, uh, a master's degree in, being annoyed with people. We don't need training in, it's lockdown season, so let's get frustrated at each other. Has anyone written to a beloved friend or family member and said, pandemic slash lockdown season has been really hard for me because I just haven't been able to get angry with anyone? It's been really difficult. I can't, I can't get my annoyance to kick in. It's really troubling. <laughs> Comes naturally. The good news is, though we bring our baggage with us wherever we go, sometimes we'll bring it not even on our behalf. Sometimes we'll bring things done to our father or mother, things done to our grandfather or grandmother, things done to our generational descendants decades ago, hundreds of years ago. We'll bring it with us. That's what the Jews and Gentiles were doing. And listen, not all that we would bring to the table in terms of grievances, anger, pain, division, not all of it's nothing. Sometimes there's deep patterns of sin, wrongdoing, evil, real hardship. The Jews and the Gentiles had that too. It's not that their hostility, you understand, was all ridiculous. A lot of it probably wasn't ridiculous. You see the Middle Eastern conflict that still plays out in Israel and Palestine? You're up to speed on that, I'm, I'm sure. There's real grounds for hostility, depending on what you're looking at there. This is the kind of situation that Paul is talking about He's not saying you guys have been playing make-believe over here with your grievances. He's saying you may have uh, one family that has members of the family that have killed other members of the family, Jew to Gentile, Gentile to Jew. That's the kind of grievance we're talking about in the church of Jesus Christ. Hostility ceases. This is a miracle. Everybody wants a miracle. Everybody wants to hear a voice from heaven telling them which job to take. This is the miracle, friends. This is the miracle God has given us. That you don't have to be a hostage to your anger and your pain and whatever it is you are bringing with you in terms of your background. Even if it is real. Even if there is grounds for grievance. In the cross, the dividing wall of hostility dissolves. And then thirdly in verse 14, this is all accomplished as I say, by Christ who in his flesh, Paul says verse 14, brings the old covenant law to perfect fulfillment. The law of the Old Testament is so perfectly met and fulfilled and consummated in Christ that Paul uses the language of it being abolished, inoperative, so if you've ever wondered if you are bound to the old covenant law when you're reading in your Bible reading plan through the whole Bible, like, you know, four different places, five different genres or whatever it is, if you've ever wondered as you're reading, 
in the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, other books, if you've wondered, does this apply to me? Paul answers that. You're not bound to the old covenant law. You're not bound even, I believe, to the Ten Commandments. It's not that they have no value. They teach us a great deal. But you are not under the statutes of Old Testament Israel. This is because of Christ. There is not Gentile Christianity and Jewish Christianity. There is Christianity, which is in Christ. In Christianity, there is one new man. Verse 15, Jesus has brought Jew to the table and Gentile to the table and made them a new humanity. That is how strong divine grace is. Divine grace takes alienated, hostile people who come into the same room with bristling baggage from generations past, and Jesus says, you who have faith in me, you're one. You're one new man. It's as if the human race has been newly created by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 is teaching us. There is effectively a new humanity. Now, I don't mean that you and I are superhumans as Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we have been remade in the image of Jesus Christ and we are the human beings by God's kindness that are going to live forever with God. It's like the human race has been remade because it has been. This teaches you then and me that our primary identification, that is, is not with our background. It's not with our common skin color. It's not with our social class. It's not with people who have the same educational attainments as us. On and on it goes. It's not what state we're from, etc. Our common identifier, the people with whom we have true unity, oneness, are Christians. Christians. People who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is your family. Those are your people. On this earth, we will still have disagreements. We won't get everything right. Sometimes it's easier to have oneness and practical form with some folks rather than others. Tragically, there, there is division, e even in the church. Tragically, believers, I mean genuine believers, don't always get along, don't always have oneness. Much to say about that. But suffice it to say that your people are not the people who have your last name. First and foremost, your people are those who are found in Christ. Those who are the one new man who have been remade in Jesus Christ. In Christ, verse 16, we are reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God. There was hostility between us and God. That is where truly the strongest division and separation and hatred and alienation is found. Not in human beings despising one another, but in that natural condition I was talking about a few minutes ago at the start of the sermon, our natural hatred of God. Humanity doesn't start from a posture of love to God. 
the Bible teaches, we start from a posture of hatred to God. That's why we need reconciliation. This reconciliation does not come in changing your feelings pattern to Jesus. When I think a negative thought about Jesus, I'm just going to start thinking a positive one. This reconciliation does not come from respecting Jesus. I've been, I've been cursing. I've been using his name in vain. I've got to start respecting him. He deserves respect. This reconciliation doesn't come from trying to do what Jesus did. Just put a little bracelet on your wrist and do what Jesus did. Reconciliation flows. This reconciliation does not come from hearing about prosperity theology that if you want a better job or better house or better car and you just pray to God in the name of Jesus, you'll get it. All of these forms of reconciliation are out there in American culture and in evangelical culture. None of these forms of reconciliation are true reconciliation. True reconciliation, spoiler alert, comes through the cross, verse 16 directly what Paul says. True reconciliation comes through the cross. The wrath of God is coming at us. It's not just that we're separated from God. It's that God's wrath is headed our way because of our sin. God is not the great grandfather in the sky who just turns a blind eye to any wrongdoing we do sort of just sentimentally sitting on a porch in a kind of fuzzy understanding of grandfatherness that doesn't fit with biblical grandfatherness. I just created a term, grandfatherness. That is not the biblical vision of God the Father. The biblical vision of God the Father is that He is the just judge of sin. He despises sin. He hates sin. The Isaiah 57 passage that was read earlier, illustrates that beautifully and terrifyingly. He doesn't just eh, look the other way at sin. He despises sin. He, put it stronger, he takes it personally because he should. You say, why? Because he created us. He is the potter and we are the clay. We are not the products of evolution with no one above us, no one determining our identity. We are creatures in the biblical worldview. We were made by God. We're not autonomous. We're not self-driven. God owns us. God has the rights to us. Lift up the skin on our neck, and there's a barcode from heaven. God owns us. And as the one who made us, when we sin... We're not sending sin generically into the sky, whether our wrong thinking or our wrong desiring or our wrong speaking or our wrong actions. We're directly offending a holy God. So really and truly, the great lie of our age is that God isn't there and that if people do bad things, they just sort of send it out like bad breath. But the reality is, when people do bad things, think bad thoughts, have bad desires, etc., and so on, they are offending their, their maker. We are offending our creator. And that means the just judge is not asleep. 
He has wrath, just wrath, as a result of sin. The good news then, to go back to the blood of Jesus Christ, is that the cross is so powerful in verse 16 that Paul says it kills hostility. Did you pick that up when I read it? Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God wants to kill hostility. God hates hostility. And so God is the one who steps in and sends his son so that we can be reconciled first to him and then to one another. Reconciliation is first vertical with God and only then horizontal. What this means then, friends, is that Paul is doubling down on what we were saying just a minute ago and that hostility has objectively ceased, factually ceased. For all who are in Christ, for all who trust Jesus as their Savior, there is no more hostility between them and God as in their natural condition. God does not have wrath over your head if you are a Christian. Do you understand? That's how good you have it. God should be sending wave after crashing wave of wrath at you and at me for our sin. But because of His Son who steps in in our place and dies on the cross and sheds His blood, there is no wrath over your head. Do not live, Christian, as if you are fundamentally guilty and unreconciled to God. You still can sin against God. You still will sin against God. We all will. We all must repent on a regular basis, but understand your condition, your position, to use the language that was used earlier, rightly. There is no wrath over your head. God is not going to damn you. God is not going to judge you. Jesus took it. Hostility is killed. It's dead between you and God and therefore between you and all who are in Christ. Hostility has disappeared. It's vanished. You can't find it if you tried. This is incredibly good news for you as a believer. There's not better news than this, really. This is the best news. This is the best news. Your job, your home, even your family, much as that matters, truly, there's no better news than this, that you're forgiven, that you are washed, that wrath, which should be hanging like a sword over you, is gone. And no one could put it back if they wanted to. Satan couldn't damn you or condemn you if he wanted to, and he does, but he can't do it. He can't re-guiltify you. He wants to. He wants to make you guilty again. But the blood of Jesus Christ is so strong that he can't. None of this means that you and I have a lax approach to holiness and godliness and the pursuit of a biblical worldview and life. That would be a completely wrong takeaway. The Christian, though, is fundamentally motivated positively. We're motivated positively and negatively, 
but we fundamentally live out of the overflow of this reality, that you and I are washed and cleansed and reconciled first to God and then to one another. That's why we want to live a Christian life. That's why we want to read the Bible on a daily basis. That's why we want to pray. That's why we want to serve the body in a local church. That's why we get up on a Sunday when everyone else is sleeping in. That's why we take steps when we are pulled by temptation, as everyone in here is in some form, to to block out temptation and not go there, not go to the places that are problematic places for you or for me. All of our Christian life and thought and action is motivated by thankfulness to God. So holiness isn't some duty that is to be conducted irrespective of what God has done. You just need to get yourself right. You just need to get into the Bible because you stink. No, that's not our fundamental motivation as Christians. It's out of gratitude that we do anything as a believer. God has saved us. Wrath is God. That's why we want to fundamentally live for Jesus Christ. And then secondly, yes, we don't ever want to do anything that would dishonor God, that would defame God, that would take away God's glory from our lives. Well, the good news to wrap up this point as we hasten toward home plate is that verse 18 spells it out. Now we have access in one spirit to the Father. That's what Paul says to wrap up this second movement in this passage. We have access through the Spirit to the Father. Here it is. God is the one who naturally hates sin, but God, the Father, is the one who sends His Son to atone for us, to die for us in our place. Never let someone tell you that there there are two gods in the Bible. There's the God of the Old Testament who is angry and mean. Stay away from him. And then there's the God of the New Testament who's loving and hallmarky. Don't believe it. The God who burns against sin in his holiness is the same God who sends his son in love to wash you and me clean. There are not two gods in the Bible. The God who is holy is the God who is loving. The God who is loving is the God who is holy. We need to recover a biblical doctrine of God the Father. Our faith is not mono-Christology, Christ-only faith. Do you know this? We are saved in the name by the work of Jesus Christ. But Christ's blood does what? Gives us access to the Father brings us back to our heavenly Father. We need, therefore, a properly Trinitarian faith. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So much more to say, but we need to move to our third part. The church is the household of God. The church is the household of God. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The result of the work of Jesus Christ, his atonement, that is, is that we are one family, one household. Once we were strangers and aliens, now we are fellow citizens and family members. Today, in American intellectual life, in American culture, there is tremendous division. And what different ideologies are teaching us in America is that, from many different angles and different claims, we are all divided and we cannot come back together. The American past Slavery, Jim Crow, for example, has implacably divided us, and we can't come back together. And our only solution is to be apart, but to try to make the conditions as equal as we can for all these different races and ethnicities. We can't, we can't get it back together, though. Humpty Dumpty has fallen, and you can't put him back together in terms of the American people. Now, there's a lot to say about that societally and politically. I actually think we have grounds for unity even with non-Christians, in a sense, in the image of God. We know that every person's an image bearer, so there's a lot to say about that. But our special focus as Christians is that we are not strangers and aliens anymore. Do not believe the lies of critical race theory. Do not believe the lies of what is called wokeness, that we, being of different backgrounds or different skin colors, things like this, cannot find oneness and wholeness and unity in the blood of Christ. This is the situation just like the first century church faced, where Jew and Gentile had real hostility and grievances. Remember this part of the sermon? It wasn't that long ago. Come on, guys. Okay, anyway. There's real baggage in Ephesus, I mean real baggage. And there's real baggage today. And in some cases, there's pain over real sin, even sin in the church. What's the solution? How does this get made right? What do we do? Claim the blood of Jesus. There is no other solution found in Scripture for unity and oneness. Verse 19, we are the household of God. We are the household of God. We have been formed by God. Christ Jesus, verse 20, is the cornerstone. A cornerstone does not mean a really big stone, like take, you know, a whole portion of that wall over there. One stone, really big, impressive. The cornerstone actually means the stone upon which, through which, the entire structure. I love preaching in a basketball gym, by the way. I love this. Please let this always be true for me. Okay. It means that the whole structure is aligned by one stone. You could have an entire building like this, and the entire thing, see over there in that corner, underneath the fire alarm stuff? The entire thing could be aligned by one block that's Christ. It's not, not really that Christ is big. He's the big cornerstone. Well, I mean, he's huge for us. <laughs> but the meaning of cornerstone is that it is the stone that aligns everything else, every other stone on that wall and that wall and that wall and that wall. And everything built on top of it has to be aligned with the true Christ. 
So in other words, I can't say to you, this is my Jesus, and you say, well, this is my Jesus. We can't have different Jesuses. We can't have different Christs. We can't have different cornerstones. We have to have the biblical Jesus. We have to have the biblical Christ. And the way you know that someone has the biblical Christ is if they believe that the blood of Jesus washes them clean. If they believe that the blood of Jesus makes us a family, grows us, verse 21, into a holy temple. Verse 22, builds us into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All of this flows, as I have said several times over, from the blood of Jesus. This is the opposite of do-it-yourself Christianity. This is all designed and overseen and undertaken by God the Father. None of this plan is according to human wisdom. The Apostle Paul doesn't cite any pagan philosophers here. The Apostle Paul doesn't resource any Greco-Roman intellectuals here. The Apostle Paul doesn't set up a system by which different generational divides are going to be adjudicated. Of course, if there's real sin that is done in the church, it's going to have to be handled. But notice, notice what the solution is here in the clearest terms. It's to claim the blood of Jesus as your grounds of reconciliation between you and God and between you and every Christian. What does all of this mean for us then? Well, I have just a few quick applicational thoughts. First, as we, as we close, remember that true unity and reconciliation, terms that are used everywhere today, come only through the cross. Now, I actually hope and pray that, for example, America will hold together that we will realize that we are not actually implacably divided that a lot of what is said to divide us is ginned up and fomented and made to look way worse than it is. America has made major racial progress, ethnic progress, cultural progress. I do not buy the terms that are sold us from one angle to another. We have real problems to work on. That's true societally. We do. We have real sins to defeat, absolutely, starting with our own heart. Nonetheless, I actually think we can have a form temporary and provisional of national unity. I hope we can. We have in past days. But I don't have, I don't have any real hope for that, ultimately. I want that to... I, I want that. But here's where I know I have hope. I know I have unity. I know I have reconciliation in the cross, in the church, that is where true unity and reconciliation are found, through the cross. Second, think regularly on the plan of salvation that God has engineered. God the Father has planned salvation from before the foundation of the earth in the person of His Son, and all of that is applied to us through the Spirit. Think regularly about your salvation. Think more about your salvation 
than about the flaws and shortcomings of your spouse or roommate or closest friends. And third and finally, remember that you and I, all of us, need to live with humility, grace, and charity. Sadly, Christians will sin against one another, won't we? Probably before we get home <laughs> in the car. We all look good and cleaned up for church, and there's, there's good to that. But even as redeemed people, we still have a lot of sin to fight and overcome. Praise God, we're not fighting in our own strength. We're fighting in the power of the cross. Praise God that we don't have to slide pictures under the door to our Heavenly Father. Praise God that only one out of ten times you go to God the Father in prayer does He even turn His face to you and pay attention. Praise God that you have access to God the Father anytime you pray as a Christian. Any, any moment of help you need, anytime you feel the burden of temptation, your own sin that may well be upon you, praise God you have help all the time. Praise God there is no moment when you go to confess a sin to God and repent of it and He says, eh, grace denied. Praise God. God the Father doesn't just eh, invite you to come into His study if you want to, but He goes to the front doors of the house of the church, and he throws them open wide. In fact, he takes off the hinges, and he calls sinners like you and me to come, to come in and know our heavenly Father through Christ by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, this, this is the miracle we need Forgive us for being drawn off so easily by talk of different miracles that are not true biblical miracles. We know there are many in Scripture, and they are wonderful. But we also know that many people are misled today to think that, that they need a sign from you or they need to hear a voice speaking or, or things like this when the true miracle is the forgiveness of sin. Father, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for the division we bring into our marriage or our family or our home or our workplace, whatever it may be, the church. Help us all to fight sin, to hate it, and to love you. Thank you that the doors are open wide by the blood of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.